There we go. Uh, it's great to be with you this morning. Uh, I'm thankful for the session, uh, to the session for the invitation. Uh, my wife and I have been in Ukraine uh, ever since we were married back in 2007. Uh, we are involved with um, uh, church planting alongside the Evangelical Presbyterian Church of Ukraine, which is a new uh, denomination in, in Europe, uh, fully independent from 2008, planted by PCA missionaries in the 90s, and uh, not huge. We have about 14 congregations throughout the country, but I've been serving alongside uh, them on the theological committee of the presbytery, uh, and, then the, the, and then also the last few years attempting to plant a new church in Kiev, the capital where we live, uh, a city of some 4 million people when it's not at war. So the, the main focus, though, of uh, my ministry uh, over the past uh, 15 years has been theological education. And the last 10 of those have been serving on the faculty of the Evangelical Reformed Seminary of Ukraine. That's the denominational seminary for both the Evangelical Presbyterian Church as well as the Ukrainian Evangelical Reformed Church. We have both flavors uh, in Ukraine as well as Canada. And uh, we, we feel very privileged to be part of this, this, this ministry. It's a great, uh, we believe it's very strategic and a great privilege not only to be able to preach the gospel uh, and uh, uh, evangelize, but, but to, to, to train pastors who can do that so much better than I can in their own culture and in their own language. So um, uh, I, I hope to see... Uh, a good number of you this this evening. Uh, after the evening service, I'll have the chance to present in more detail about our ministry there. And as well as that, uh, there will be a time for questions, uh, not just about our own ministry, but also about uh, the ongoing war uh, against Ukraine. As I know that there's a lot of misinformation out there and or just confusion about why this is all happening. And so I'm also happy just to field more general questions about that for those who are interested. Before we uh, open up God's Word, I want to introduce the passage. And uh, I'm sure you have been following the war in Ukraine. Perhaps uh, it's been hard to keep up and you're probably out of breath by this this point and uh, have turned to other things. That's quite understandable. But perhaps you remember back in April, uh, seeing some of the horrendous scenes from the town of Bucha, uh, along one particular street where the uh, Russians had, uh, after the Russians had abandoned uh, that, uh, that, that town, the, the bodies lying every 10 meters with their hands bound behind their backs and uh, uh, a bullet wound to the, to the head. Uh, or perhaps you remember the photograph of the, of the bloodied face sticking out of the sand and the hastily organized mass grave um, in the same town. Bucha was a beautiful town that we used to travel through on the way to the seminary, to our seminary classes before we had our own building, which, uh, praise God, we, we now have as of 2019. The day after that, it was Irpin, another suburb of, of Kiev, where uh, we learned of, that many of the, the dead bodies had been booby-trapped, they'd been mined by the Russians as they, as they left them, or, or, or defiled with with human waste. And in the same city, uh, Irpin, which is kind of like a, a Wheaton of Ukraine, a, a very 
large concentration of evangelical missions and organizations in that, in that particular place. There was one conference center which, where I'd been to in the past where not only had it been shelled, but in one of the rooms it was still partially uh, standing. The, um, the, the literature and Bibles had been gathered together and uh, set fire to. Over 400 medical facilities in Ukraine have been deliberately bombed by the Russians to date, including the maternity hospital in Mariupol that many of you will have heard of. That's a city, too, where 95% or more of the buildings have been completely devastated by the carpet bombing uh, of, the, of the Russians. And, and thousands, tens of thousands of, cil- of civilians, over 100,000, were trapped essentially in their, the basements of their own apartment buildings in what was essentially a, a medieval siege with, with no water, no food, no medicine, no electricity, no heat, and no way to escape. And every proposed way of escape, every uh, supposed humanitarian corridor was shelled uh, or mined, at least up until the month of June. Over two million Ukrainians have been kidnapped and taken on to hostile territory by the Russian army, including over 200,000 Ukrainian children. Often it's the case that parents were shot and the children stolen and deported to Russia, which is one of the internationally recognized definitions of genocide. War crime upon war crime upon war crime. I have colleagues from eastern Ukraine who've been going through this now for the second time, fleeing Russian Bombs, And even before February, over 14,000 Ukrainians had lost their lives to Russia's invasion that started in 2014. Many, many others have been left traumatized or injured by the shelling. How do you think that most Ukrainians feel right now about their enemy? Do you perhaps think that they should be praying for de-escalation? Perhaps you think they should be praying for the repentance of Putin or for the forgiveness of the Russian people, the majority of whom continue to be proud, not all, but the majority, of the, to continue to be proud of the now increasingly and openly fascist war that their country is waging. Is that what God's people should pray for in these circumstances? Or is there more to say about the matter? And if you're paying attention to what Russia has been doing in in Ukraine, do you think perhaps that even the believers amongst the Ukrainians are tempted to, to feel fury, if not hatred or even bitterness, toward their enemy? And if they are, what is the answer? Does the Bible even have something to say about something so specific as this? Well, I believe it does, and I believe it has a very realistic and helpful, practical answer. And it's an answer that certainly the people in our church plant in Kiev have, been, have found helpful to hear. And I believe it's something that anyone who's been paying attention will also uh, find helpful to, to hear. And we find this answer in Psalm 
7, which I would invite you to open and to follow throughout the sermon. But before we read it, let us bow our heads in prayer. O Father God, Sovereign God, how wonderful it is to be on this, your day, with your people in your house. Father, we pray that you would speak to us with your word, that we might know you better. Father, we pray you would help us to understand these things, help me to explain them carefully. We pray in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Psalm 7 reminds you that this is God's holy and inerrant word. And on this occasion, we will also read the title of the psalm. A Shagayan of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjaminite. O Lord, my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. Lest, like a lion, they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. O Lord, my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it, return on high. The Lord judges the people. The peoples judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. O let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous, you who who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will whet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. Thus far, the reading of God's word. The psalm is about the words of an enemy named Cush. Now, Cush is not mentioned elsewhere in Scripture. We don't know 
for sure uh, who he was, but he was, a, but he was a Benjaminite. And we do know that King Saul and his court was surrounded by Benjaminites, some of whom were very likely to also have falsely accused David, perhaps of being disloyal or something worse. Accusations that were both false and also potentially very dangerous or even lethal. At the start of this psalm in verses 1 to 2, David sets out the problem. He fears his enemies and the consequences of their actions. Verse 2, lest they tear my soul apart. Now, of course, this can be read literally as a, as a threat to David's life. We, we know that in this period of David's life from Saul, he was under physical threat. But I do think that possibly, just possibly here, David is also referring to the threat to his inner man. The danger or the threat to his, to his heart. Again, even though he is physically pursued at times, the title of the psalm mentions that the psalm is about the words of his enemy. Now, to be fair, the Hebrew can be here simply translated concerning Cush. But if the ESV rendering is, is right, then we should ask ourselves, well, if physical violence of the enemy um, presents one threat, then what is the threat of the words of one's enemy? In any case, this is the threat to David. Lest, like a lion, they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces. And so if that is the problem, then what is the solution? If, of course, the psalm offers us a solution. We know that not every psalm, including Psalm 88, does offer us one. Well, first of all, to state the obvious, the psalm is a prayer to God. And it is important to say that first. But what does the prayer consist of? Well, first of all, and this is verses 1 and 10, he first acknowledges God as his answer. And he asks him to save him from his enemies. O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Now, Psalm 46 tells us much more about how God is a refuge, and um, this evening we'll, we'll hear more about that. But this is where David begins this psalm as well. And because God is his refuge, he engages God in prayer. He opens up and verbalizes what's on his heart. And so first and foremost, whatever your internal state is today, and you may face your own enemies, your own attacks, but as Russia brings Ukraine to waste, and our brothers and sisters in Ukraine face attack there, they and we need to keep talking to God. Of course, that is crucial. But what does David say as he talks to God? Well, first, he, he tells God what he fears the consequences of his enemy's attacks will be in verse 2. And we already read that verse. He shares this fear out loud, lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none 
to deliver. Now, again, I believe that David faced not only physical danger, but the dangers of a heart ripped to pieces and rubbed raw from fear and potentially bitterness and hatred towards the enemy, Cush, that falsely accused him. Again, this is danger I think we need to remain aware of ourselves and certainly our brothers and sisters in the Presbyterian churches in Ukraine need to remain aware of. But us too, as we read the news about Ukraine. Next, verses 3 to 5 and verse 8. David asks God to test his innocence in this matter and to judge him. And he says that he's willing to receive judgment if, in fact, he is guilty. But he declares his innocence. Oh Lord, my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Now maybe you're thinking here, well, Psalm 130, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But that's not the appropriate association here, I believe. Of course, David's life was not completely without sin. We know that only too well. We know of his adultery and of his murder. But in this matter, concerning this accusation that David faced and this attack of his enemy, he was completely and absolutely innocent. So much so that he demanded that God judge him with regard to it. Now, to immediately apply this to the context of the land where our family has been serving and to the war in Ukraine, of course, Ukraine is not a perfect country. It is not a country that is completely free of corruption or of other reasons for blame in general. But with regard to the accusations of her enemy, but with regard to the attack of her enemy, Ukraine is 100% innocent and without blame. Next, verses 6 to 13, David asks for and describes God's judgment upon his enemies. And in verse 8, also upon himself. Verse 12 now does speak about the repentance of the enemy. Uh, At least that's one way it can be translated. It can be um, translated otherwise. But in the ESV we read, if a man does not repent, God will whet his sword. Now, many people over the years, including our own family, uh, have prayed over the previous years for Putin's repentance. But is that really what's most appropriate right now? Is that not incredibly naive at this, at this stage? Are we not beyond that? 
I personally do believe that we, we are. And that is in the many imprecatory psalms of Scripture that we find a better model for our prayer in this situation. We do not see David praying for the repentance of his enemies, but rather for their demise, for their defeat, and for their destruction. For example, Psalm 109, uh, from verse 6 onwards, we read as one example, Appoint a wicked man against him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. And when he is tried, let him come forth guilty. Let his prayer be counted as sin. May his days be few, and may another take his office. May his children be fatherless, and his wife a widow. Or Psalm 35, verses 8 and 9. Let destruction come upon him when he does not know it. And let the net that he hid ensnare him. Let him fall into it to his own destruction. Then my soul will rejoice in the Lord, exulting in his salvation. Now next, as part of the judgment that he asks for his enemies, he describes in verses 14 to 16 what I would call the boomerang effect of sin. Let's read those verses, 14 to 16. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head and on his own skull his violence descends. Now we see this in various places in the Psalms, including also in verse, in, in a couple of Psalms later, in verse 15 as well, where we read the nations, Psalm 9:15, have sunk in the pit that they made and the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. But in other parts of Scripture, in many places we see this, this idea of this biblical reversal of God's judgment. Think of the Exodus, the most famous example of how God not only stops the enemy that wanted to destroy his people, but destroyed their army and punished their people. Or think of Esther 9. We read the passage this, this morning already, but uh, let me just repeat a few words from Esther 9, 24 and 25. Uh, for Haman had plotted against the Jews to destroy them. But verse 25, when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head, and that he and his sons, Haman's, should be hanged on the gallows. Now, brothers and sisters and friends, we do need to be careful with these imprecatory psalms. This is not about being served the, the wrong coffee and Tim Hortons and calling down judgment upon the barista or, or anything even in between such a trivial example. But this is a context in where 
David knew that he was innocent. And he knew of the outright evil of his enemy's attack. Now, again, brothers and sisters, we are assured of eternal justice. And verse 7 does at least uh, in part imply that context. But in my estimation, it is this boomerang effect of evil above all else that presents the biggest hope for Ukrainians today before Christ comes again. And for all who love that land and long for justice and restoration soon. This is realistic. When you've experienced the atrocities that Ukraine has experienced and none of us, I pray, have, are you really going to tell the parents of young girls violated by the Russians' soldiers that they should not want retribution or vengeance upon the ones who did it? Or the same to the husband of the pregnant mother who was shelled in her maternity bed? It's natural to want vengeance for this sort of evil. And his right to be angry. God is angry over such evil. But it is God's place to give vengeance. It is his place to judge. However, again, I, get, I, believe, I do believe that in a clear-cut example, as we find in Psalm 7, and as I believe we have an application to the war against Ukraine, I believe that we can and should be praying for this biblical boomerang effect for God to direct the evil of the enemy back upon his own head. This is realistic. This is right, I believe. And this acknowledges and does not deny what we naturally feel. And yet, it still leaves the judgment with God. It is his to carry out. This is the realistic way we can shield our hearts from bitterness and end up with hearts like that of David in the last verse of this psalm. Look, would you, at verse 17. I will give, thank, I will give to the Lord thanks, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord. David says, In these circumstances where David, I think, feared for the state of his soul, his heart, where he was clearly under unjustified attack by his enemy, I don't think that we can shortcut from verses 1 and 2 to verse 17. We need perhaps, I think, like David, to to first remember that, that God is our answer and our refuge. To tell him what we're going through, to Declare our innocence, if of course we are. And to ask God to judge and to strike down our enemy. And for God to make our enemy's evil return to him like a boomerang upon his own head. Perhaps only then, realistically, can we reach the place where David ends his psalm. He ends his prayer with a heart full of thanks and praise, not 
a heart full of bitterness and hatred. No. His heart is directed towards God in praise and thanks. It has not been torn apart or rent to pieces. Let's end by reading these words that David directs upwards and thanks and worship to God. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord the Most High. Let us bow our heads in prayer. O sovereign and good God, we thank you that you are a God of justice. Father, we plea for your mercy upon the people and the land of Ukraine as they face this merciless attack. We pray that you would stop and that you would remove the enemy, that the death and suffering and violence might come to an end and come to an end soon. We pray that you would bless and continue to bless the faithful witness of your people in that land. But Father, we, we thank you for the assurance of eternal justice. But Father, our hearts cry out for justice even now before, Lord Jesus, you come again. And so we do ask for that. And we thank you, nonetheless, that with regard to ourselves, we don't know you as the God of only justice, but through Christ Jesus and his sacrifice, the God of mercy who has brought us in to peace with you, a righteous and holy God. And we give you thanks. Amen.